0: So I, I've been watching, I mean, since we did the original Starbase 217 radio show, which was three years ago now, mm-hmm. they've started releasing The Next Generation on Blu-ray. Um, and I know Josh owns the first two seasons, right, Josh? That's right. And I, and I just bought the third season, and they look fantastic. They
1: do an awesome job. Yeah. Not just the remastering, but the extras and the, mm-hmm. just everything. And the little episodic promos, I always watch them.
0: Yeah, those are the things, if it's not clear what they are, before a lot of the episodes on the Blu-rays, they have the old uh, commercials that you might remember from when the show was actually syndicated with the guy going, Next time time." on Star Trek, the next generation. Except he says, Star Trek.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) And
1: they give the just a one or two sentence synopsis of the episode in the cheesiest way possible. Right. And it's it's kind of great.
0: They actually. also make it... The episodic promo for Hollow Pursuits doesn't mention Barkley at all. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa.
1: Not to confuse really? you, but there's a new character on Star Trek.
0: Hollow Pursuits is, of course, the uh, classic episode where Barkley... It's most remembered for the fact that Barkley is obsessed with the holodeck and keeps shirking his responsibilities because he's got holodiction, as they call it, and he's got, like, comedic versions of all of the rest of the crew uh, that he's created on the holodeck, and they get kind of mad, and it's really funny. <laughs> it's a great episode. Yeah, oh, it's I like fantastic. that episode.
2: I know a lot of fans don't like Barkley, but I like Barkley.
0: Man, a lot of fans suck. Yes. <laughs> He's the worst crew
1: member, but that makes him sort of likable. Because yeah. you've got this, sh- this ship full of exemplary everything. The best engineer, the best yeah. number one, the best whatever. And, and then you've got <laughs> Barkley. Right. Like, you yeah. have to imagine there's some crap crew member on here somewhere, and that's that's him.
2: Yeah, it's not like they suddenly invented holodecks in our current society that there wouldn't be people getting addicted to holodecks left and right. I mean, you have people okay, addicted yeah. to online games, and right. those are essentially, okay. you know... Rather shallow, uh, you know, two dimensional experiences.
1: Yeah. Which I do think Deep Space Nine uh, gets into with the hollow suites. Like, right. there do seem to be hollow addicts in there, which
0: I think. They acknowledge more overtly than the next generation ever does that people would use this technology for sex. Yeah. Like, they just skip right to that. Like, right, yeah. <laughs>
1: There's no like, oh, maybe I'm going to pretend to have this uh, seafaring adventure and, you know, when no one's looking have a sex life on it. No, it's just, people just go there just for
0: that. They're none of the main characters. That's true. The main characters have a more subtle fantasy life that they need to fulfill.
2: They do that a little bit on Voyager, where uh, they have that horrible Irish stereotype town that they keep active in the holodeck for months or something, and Captain Janeway ends up having... a relationship with some guy like some right. uh, like Irish village barkeep or something like that that I, I think uh, she does actually... have sex with.
0: I think we've actually spoken about how much Star Trek the, hates the Irish on this radio show before three years ago. I would hope we hadn't missed that. Yeah, that's yeah. that's something we talk about in personal. Right, <laughs> it's so weird. Star Trek. I think Star Trek thinks that Star Trek loves the Irish, but yeah. Star Trek actually hates the Irish. them <laughs>
1: prominently yeah. in, in cartoonish roles is not the same as the right. Fits.
2: <laughs> Although of course the sad. most prominent example of. Uh, you know, Irish in Star Trek is Chief O'Brien, who's a pretty awesome character played by a good actor.
0: That's true, that's true.
1: That's true, that's easy to overlook.
0: But I was going to say about the Blu-rays, the amazing thing mm. about this TV show that people might not know is that it was actually filmed on 35mm and then transferred to video, apparently, which is something yeah. that I found out, I think, maybe in a conversation with you, in. Or with somebody about Star Trek. I don't remember matter. where I heard it. I thought I heard it from you. So. Oh okay, maybe yeah, I tell you
2: this. Yeah. Um, all along
0: <laughs> it was you? <laughs> it was Barkley all along. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons the Blu-rays look so fantastic. They actually went back to the original camera negatives, I think and reprinted it onto new interpositives and then transferred that to to high-def uh, digital copies. Yeah, and it, it well, holds that's...
1: up really well. I mean, some of the set designs and costumes are, are sort of laughable, and yet... But some of them are surprisingly great. Exactly, yeah. Some of yeah. Riza. Ryza. I watched the Riza episode recently, which I never really Captain's Holiday? Yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I love that episode. It's
1: awesome.
0: It's a great episode. A lot and of so... the aliens look extra cool. So, some of the special effects are great. Um... And, I mean, like, in ways that you never realize, there were, like, really subtle details and lightings on, like, uh, moons and craters and planets and stuff that you didn't realize were there. You yeah. simply didn't, even when it was originally broadcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was the, something and the that lighting first on the show was about great. this
2: that I didn't realize was that not, not only the, the scenes, but the special effects were also filmed on 35mm. Right, yeah. Uh, although that's also why it's taking them so long to put out the whole... Uh, series is because it was actually uh, cut and edited on VHS. So that after they transfer it, they, actually they have, have to go re-edit back everything, and re-edit it to be exactly oh, wow. like the original uh, VHS.
1: Thank God, there's so many fans out there. I can't imagine too many shows getting this level of of reissue treatment. I mean,
0: this is this awesome. explains why they're 129.99 each. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And why the packaging, I mean, before when they released the Star Trek DVDs, part of the highlight was the packaging. I mean, for nerds who like to have pretty DVD shelves, <laughs> and, but now the packaging sort of like haphazard. Yeah. yeah. And I think part of that is with the partial collapse of the video market where like everybody just downloads everything anyway. So why spend extra money on uh, packaging? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think part of it is probably also they've already spent so much money transferring and re-editing and, you know, searching archives for... And doing
1: uh, these interviews with people. There's there's so many.
0: Yeah, I watched one where Seth MacFarlane interviewed three of the yeah. writers. Did you see this?
1: Uh, I think so. I thought it was weird that Seth MacFarlane was talking, but he he's on there quite a bit in yeah. the interviews. Just talking about how much he loved Best of Both Worlds and how that was the best cliffhanger ever yeah. and stuff.
0: My, I think my favorite part of, of that whole interview, which is like an hour and 15 minutes long, is uh, that uh, when the, he asks them what their least favorite episode is, Rene Echevarria, I think it is, uh, goes, which one's the racist one? Um, <laughs> and, and he was thinking of uh, the one in the first season where Tasha Yar has to like, fight to the death Against like that's like right that's like episode two or something like that. yeah
1: it's, it's a right there something like that first disc I think it's right at the start and it's one of those if you're thinking of rewatching the series and you get to that episode don't let it stop you <laughs> right <laughs> keep just watching. remember
2: that the first season you know having that on Blu-ray is for completists
1: yeah right. <laughs> I think they also loaded the first season with more interviews and extras than any other season, I think for that, that very reason, to, to give you a reason to, to, <laughs> to own it.
2: As compensation, as a we're sorry that this season exists.
1: Yeah, we're sorry how, how the Ferengi act and look.
2: Uh, oh my goodness. They'll get better, yeah.
0: we promise.
2: Yeah. There's so many things
0: wrong with that first season. I, I was noticing recently, actually, I was watching um, Symbiosis, which is a first season episode. It's a pretty good first season episode. It's one of the few pretty good ones. Um, but look, Worf and Jordy have comparatively little to do in the hmm. first season. Because you've got hmm. that extra cast member, Tasha, who's in what will be Worf's position by season two. And Jordy's not chief engineer yet. He's just sort of at the comms. He's sometimes. the guy with the visor. That's Yeah, yeah that's his whole character.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. They really, it's it's... Hard to imagine where, you know, getting from point A to point whatever, eventually.
2: just wanted to, it's, uh, you know, probably time to say once again that you're listening to Starbase 217. Yes.
0: Uh, Real quick, we should probably move on from Star Trek. We've gotten sidetracked a lot, but we do have a couple other Star Trek things to talk about. Mm. Um, one, One was the fact that a Star Trek movie just came out. And we could probably talk slash complain about that movie for a while. Sure. We might have already wasted our complaining capital with Man of Steel. It had
1: plenty of fridge uh, <laughs> fridge movie, fridge logic to it. Yeah.
0: yeah.
2: yeah.
1: Actually, more than, than maybe any other movie I've seen all, yeah. it, all summer. Yeah,
2: it's kind of impressive how both it and the previous J.J. J. Abrams' Star Trek just have plots that make no sense whatsoever.
1: No sense. They're not like a Star Trek episode, which... Though they'll, they'll have kind of jokey, made-up science to them, they make more sense.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but yeah, Khan's plan in in this latest one just was sort of like, really, that's that's your plan? That's...
0: He's a super genius. And you, just, and you come up with that, and, Yeah. yeah. Well, I was
2: actually pretty well entertained by it. I yeah, mean, I agree. Despite the fact that, it, like the previous one, it's just entirely, it's not so much... A plot that's full of holes, but like one giant plot hole that might just have a little bit of plot around the edge. But the uh, um, I was fairly well entertained by it up until the sort of completely useless and needlessly telegraphed trite resolution of yeah. this uh, reenacted scene.
0: Oh god. Which is sort of just a spit in the face to people who actually love S- Star Trek. I mean, yeah. I think they meant it as an as, as an homage, but yeah. out of danger.
2: Like, no. I think I heard half
0: the audience just going, "No."
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as it was happening, I was I was just like quietly saying to myself in the theater, like, uh, "You're really just going to do this, aren't you? Like, this right. is this is the thing that's happening." Like, it's, I was I, willing
0: to accept. Spoiler alert. That they were going to do some sort of reversal where, like, Kirk was going to be the one to die for the ship. But it made sense in terms of the plot that didn't make sense about, like, Kirk growing up and stuff. It's fine. Yeah. But the
1: way it was executed.
0: They just stole every emotional cue from Wrath of Khan. So the whole time I'm thinking, oh, this is done better in Wrath of Khan. (laughs) And it's really hard for me to imagine not
1: not having seen Wrath of Khan and and going into that fresh and, you know, because maybe that's who that's for. Right. But it would just seem sort of odd, I think, too. Like, well, this is weirdly out of place. Like, why is this happening?
2: Yeah, I agree. Well, the the part that was really the insult to injury part for me was the fact that they even pointed it. They basically pointed out what they were doing in dialogue they're like oh well you're in the place where I would have been and I'm doing what you would have done if you were in and it's it's just the fact that you're not only copying the scene and badly you're actually pointing out the fact that you're doing that in your character's dialogue right they're doing that in more way than one they even have young
0: Spock call old Spock and say can I copy you (laughs) yeah and he's like no
2: yes but
1: okay yeah (laughs)
2: So by the time at the end when Spock shouts "God," uh, I'm just, I basically like, tuned out by that point. Like, you know that that was just like icing on the cake of how incredibly stupid, the whole thing was. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And and yet it uh, as as my first local 3D IMAX experience. It had some awesome like the ship trails. Were, yeah, were were fantastic. The 3D. Mm-hmm flying through to the, de- the debris scene was was awesome like there were there were things in it that they couldn't afford in the original show that looked really
0: cool but
1: like that's the trade-off like we have to yeah. have this stupid shallow plot
0: instead uh, you know and I'm going to can I play devil's advocate for a do. second? Please do. I I'm going to go ahead and say that Star Trek has always worked better as a TV show which I think we can all agree with and yes. you know whether the sh- movies have had the original Kirk cast or the Picard cast or whatever, they've always had to deal with the pressures of being a big-budget sci-fi movie. So you see what happened to, like, characters like Data as the Next Generation oh, movies God. go on. He gets sort of shoehorned into this role that he was only in for maybe the first season of the original... of, of Next Generation, where he's just, like, comedic relief. And, strong. and like
2: and like, strong, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. He
0: becomes the Terminator or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and it's really, really... It's incredibly dumb. I mean, by Nemesis, you have, like, a dune buggy chase on a desert planet. Um, so, I, I mean, like, the movies have always, in some way, I feel, like, betrayed the spirit of the show. That's kind of true. And I think J.J. Abrams gets a lot of hate, and some of that is deserved... But, like, the Next Generation movies also deserve that. That's true. The Next
1: Generation show ended so long ago. And they kept making movies that weren't as good as the show. And why should we hate them for just making a bigger budget,
0: maybe more fun version of that? Well, no, not that we shouldn't hate them. We can hate them if we want.
2: (laughs) I choose to hate them. We'll
0: still see them, but... But we treat J.J. Abrams like he took something that was sacred and had something... yeah. And and like and like perverted what it was. But the movies, which is what he's working in, the movies have always sort of been like their plots have often not made sense. Or, or generations, yeah. yeah. Generations or <laughs> I mean Nemesis Nemesis is full of holes. And it tries to steal emotional yeah. cues from Rath of Khan because Data sacrifices himself for Picard at the end, and yeah. you go, Oh, it's like it's like Spock. Um, well,
2: I mean what's interesting <laughs> though is that you know what works for the show, and what we love about the show, really doesn't work that well for the movies. That I would, I would argue that even the movies that are good, like two, four, six, eight, none of them are very much like the show. Like two is super action oriented, and so is eight. And uh, yeah. though probably the ones that are most like the show are maybe you know one
0: generations. and
2: generations. And yeah. they're both terrible.
0: Yeah, well, one's not terrible, but one's it is not terrible. Boring. But it has a
2: lot of. It's not good either. It's right. It doesn't work as a show. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: No, that's very true.
2: So, speaking of whether
0: it's a show or, or it's a movie, um, news broke last month, two months ago, that uh, Michael Dorn himself was trying to get the Captain Worf show to happen. And I think yeah, we all got momentarily excited about that. Mm-hmm. Thought There's no way the world would pass up on this. How could anyone right. pass up on, this <laughs> on the, uh,
2: It's not like so anyone genius. has ever rejected anything that Worf has suggested, so...
0: Right.
2: <laughs> For listeners who don't know, there is a an 18-minute supercut on YouTube of every everything that Worf has ever suggested being ignored.
0: Yeah. Uh, on Next Generation, let's be clear about that. That's true, Yeah. 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 Work is treated a little bit better on by the writers on Deep Space Nine, I feel.
1: Well, because yeah. at that point, they had better developed Klingons, too. Yeah. I mean, really, that was kind of one of the main arcs of, of Deep Space Nine. Was, yeah, uh, absolutely
0: agreed. It's one kind of the of that things cool that's cursor. admirable.
1: Yeah. Clunky as, as the early seasons of that show are, I mean, they go out of their way to make Klingons kind of
0: mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, because Klingons, on, on Next Gen, often too often they seem like one-dimensional stereotypes and like very sort of Orientalist stereotypes about, like honor and aggression and the way of the warrior mm-hmm. and like all this stuff but they're that sort of culture is very complicated by Deep Space Nine and, and Worf as a character is complicated a lot by Deep Space especially
2: Space. when the other Klingons tell him to lighten up a little bit
0: uh, yeah right no I love that yeah um, it, it adds more complexity to Worf's character actually to know that he takes his Klingonness too seriously that he might have a sort mm-hmm. of Distorted version of what klingon means. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Also, it introduces Martok, who's probably my favorite uh, Klingon character.
0: Well, Worf is my favorite Klingon character, but Martok is my favorite non-main cast Klingon mm-hmm. character. Martok
1: mm-hmm. helps. I think he's a good foil, really. Yeah. Like, he's a great, you know, he's, he's given less screen time, but he he's so good, he better develops Worf as a character, I
0: think. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Agree. But the
0: Captain Wharf show isn't, isn't
2: happening.
1: We, yeah, it's just a delicious rumor, that's, right. that's all. No, right. I, we,
2: we have that on good authority from Michael Dorn himself.
0: Right, we, we heard that from Michael Dorn himself.
2: That uh, one yeah. remove.
0: Well, I have... Okay, yeah, uh, it was secondhand. But I have friends who, who met Michael Dorn after, after a conference, and they... You know, this is actually like a week after the news broke, or two weeks after the news broke about Captain Wharf. And so they excitedly asked Michael Dorn about the Captain Worf show, and he said, no, everybody's too focused on J.J. Abrams right now. Nobody's giving it it enough of an ear. Um, Which is, um, maybe that's something we can blame J.J. Abrams for. Yeah. Damn it. (laughs) Yeah. If only they had done Captain Worf instead of Enterprise.
1: Why Why doesn't J.J. Abrams just take on Captain Worf? Yeah. He might destroy it, but... (laughs) He might
0: make it
2: awesome. Well, I'm gonna say like the worst, like the worst thing about some of the stuff that J.J. Abrams has done is not necessarily J.J. Abrams himself, but some of his writing partners, Orsi and and Orsi. Yeah. yeah, who are total hacks.
0: <laughs> but, bad. but I don't know what to think about Orsai and Kirschman because they did, uh, they worked with him on Alias, and Alias is really great for two seasons. And Fringe was really good for about two seasons. <laughs> and Lost was really good for about two seasons. <laughs> so, good point. I mean, so the, the most important thing is. Yeah. The part
1: isn't in the thing that you're still watching, but they've already moved on to other things. And yeah, yeah. I, I noticed that too.
2: There well, well some there, sp- it was something like that that's a television show, how many of those episodes have they actually written versus, I don't know. you know, to what extent did they exert uh you know control over the writers room for those shows and whether the you know any part of that sort of decline of those shows if that's at least in part because the uh uh because they set up the over overarching idea that there can be lots of stories inside but if the overarching idea doesn't make any sense <laughs> In the first place then uh then it kind of ends up declining as a consequence yeah. um yeah it's just a theory i don't know but they're they're the best what annoys me is that they're the best writers in hollywood like but it's not because they're actually good it's, i mean they wrote the first two transformers movies they didn't it's, write the third one i i think they i don't no think so <laughs> Sort of maybe thinking. only one of them did. I'm not sure. but the uh, uh, I'm, They're the best writers in Hollywood because the movies that they write all make hundreds of millions of dollars. But that has nothing to do with their writing. But the producers who are hiring people for these projects, they don't actually look at that. They look at how much money the movies that they've worked on previously have made.
0: Well, you know, I think... We were talking earlier about how Christopher Nolan is terrible at the sort of light and breezy comedy that he tries to still shoehorn into moments mm-hmm. of his Batman and Superman movies, or something Kurtzman do okay, not in the Transformers movies, but in the Star Trek movies that has great sort of like that's popcorn humor. Yeah. yeah,
1: there's there's yeah that's that's why when you're in the moment and you're watching it you're you're into it. Hey, special effects and one-liners constantly. This crew, this cast has genuine chemistry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then and then you stop and think about the plot and you're like, (laughs) wait a minute.
2: (laughs) Yeah, my favorite thing about Super Soldiers
1: uh... and Torpedoes, hold on.
2: (laughs) Well maybe that's an indication that the direction is good and the writing is bad.
0: That that could be true. His delivery is like 90% of that sort of comedy. That's why Will Smith is the best uh, action star. <laughs> or he was before he started being like M. Night Shyamalan movies. Before and... he had a son that was in movies with right. him. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Who's with Will Smith. That's uh, a different conversation for another day. But...
1: That's episode two. What's yeah. the deal with, with Will Smith? <laughs> Love to revisit that. Which hey, by the way, I, I, I hear more and more about Independence Day two being a, a real thing. And oh, he's
0: not gonna be in it though. Oh really? Roland Emmerich has said he will not be in it. will Peshaw.
2: But who will My welcome biggest. the aliens to Earth?
0: Well, I hear that Bill Gee, Pullman David Smith. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I hear that Bill Pullman and Jeff Goldblum are both coming back. Yes, I saw oh, that. That'd be cool. Starbase 217 is Joshua King, Pat Brown, and Ian Iverson Curry. It's recorded in Champaign, Illinois, and Washington, D.C., and mixed on Pat's five-year-old MacBook. Intro and outro music is graciously supplied by the band Five Year Mission, who over the course of five albums is recording a song for every episode of Star Trek The Original Series. The song here, used with permission, is The Man Trap from the first of these albums. You can find Five Year Mission at fiveyearmission.net, at sci-fi and comic conventions, and on iTunes
2: what she seems to be But she lets me work and keeps me